Well, amen. John chapter 19, if you have your Bibles, John 19. Appreciate the multi-generational worship here this morning, and uh, just so good to see. And uh, hey, if you got a child who would love to be a part of Children's Choir, they meet every Wednesday night, 415. Uh, just have them downstairs, and they can be a part of that. But John chapter 19, if you have your Bibles, as you step back and you walk through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it becomes obvious that Jesus knew exactly what was to happen to him, as we've seen in the series. He knew what he was doing, he was in complete control, and he was leading all things and all people to this moment in history. Thus, while it appears to be the most weakest moments of his life, it's actually his power, his authority, his supremacy, his kingship, his dominion on display. Even as he hangs on a tree and breathes his last. Within our series today, we look at the crucifixion. We've seen the arrest, the denial, the trial. Next week, Easter Sunday, we'll look at the resurrection. But today, we look at the crucifixion. In other words, we look at the death. So towards the end of the trial, it was about noon, middle of the day, 12 p.m. And Pilate brings Jesus out. Remember, we looked a little bit at this last week. And at this moment, when he brings him out, Jesus has been brutally beaten, horrifically shamed and humiliated, crown of thorns on his head, purple robe thrown over his back that was most likely like flesh turned inside out. And Pilate brings him out at the end of the trial and says, behold your king. Of course, they cry out, away with him, away with him, just crucify him. Pilate says to them, you want me to kill your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So after that, and you can see this in John 19, verse 16, so they took Jesus and they think about it, make Jesus in its current state carry his own cross. When he fumbles about through Jerusalem, even at one point we see he can't even carry it himself. They have to ask a guy by the name of Simon to carry it. And they go out of Jerusalem to the place of the skull, to Golgotha in Aramaic. It, it was a notorious spot there right outside Jerusalem, atop a little hill. It was a very public area. All the Jews in and around Jerusalem and the whole area would know about it. It was a spot where Romans crucified Criminals hung them on crosses to be a declaration to anybody who's thinking about going against Rome. 
So here's Jesus carrying his cross, no longer able to even carry it, fumbling about, goes out of Jerusalem, and there at Golgotha, they nail his hands and his feet into the wood. Blood already beginning to stain the wood. And they proceed to lift Jesus up and put him right there in between two thieves, one on his right, one on his left. Over the next several hours, soldiers who were in charge of making sure the execution continued as planned, the soldiers played games out of boredom, played games for his garments. People proceeded to walk by. It's Passover time. Many people traveling into Jerusalem. Many people coming from nearby communities and and going into maybe the marketplaces, wherever it might be. People traveling about, walking by. People hurling insults at him. Shaking fists, shaking heads. Saying things like, well, he saved others. Can't he save himself? Why didn't he just come down off that cross? If he is who he says he is. And even Jesus over that time would say a few words off and on. Even here in John's account, we see that he gives final instructions to his mother, almost like a farewell will to them. And all the while, he's on that tree, slowly, painfully, either suffocating or bleeding to death. Then, after this we read, John 19, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, knowing that everything was complete, everything He set out to do, the whole purpose of why He came, knowing that all was now finished, He said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, a a kind of wine mixed with vinegar, nasty, cheap wine. Soldiers would drink it often, slaves would really drink it often. So here's this jar full of sour wine that stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Verse 30. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The question remains, why? Why death? Why in this way? A ministry, a triumphal entry into Jerusalem just days before. Why with so much promise and hope built into his arrival? Why death? And our response, in light of the New Testament, we might say, well, love. Of course, yes, sure. For God so loved the world. It's by this that we know love that he laid down his life for us. Yes, love. 
But why did he have to die? And why does John say things like, Jesus knew that all was now finished? Why does even Jesus say things like, he's thirsty when he knows that he's seconds away from dying? What's the point? What is really going on here? Well, the simple answer, Jesus died, and Jesus had to die for you and for me. If you and I were ever going to have a relationship with God. And here's what's remarkable. Jesus knew this full well, and as Paul would even argue, before even time began. But still, why? Why death? Why did he have to die for you and me? What's separating us from God? Well, let me say it this way. Jesus died for you and me for sins, yes, for what we have done, but also for the source of our sins, for sin itself. My old youth pastor, he's now the associate pastor at our previous church. We'd often talk, have long discussions of life, uh, culture, sports, theology. And we'd often talk a lot about sin. What sin is and its effects on us individually, but also on the world. And I'll never forget one time he gave me this illustration in our conversation. And I think it's a pretty good one. in capturing what I believe Jesus' death, and this text in particular reveals or affirms, because I believe that Jesus' death, and this text in particular, reveals and affirms the why Jesus had to die for you and for me. So the story goes something like this. There was a couple boys who one weekend said, hey, let's go hiking out in the woods near our house. And so they go and they find some trails there in the woods and, you know, it's just a beautiful trail and they go hiking into the woods. And after a while, they come across a river. And when they come across their river, they discover that there's trash in the river. And this doesn't sit well with them, right? And all this grandeur around them and even this beautiful river, here they got this trash in this river. So the two boys decide, hey, let, let's, let's clean this up. This, this isn't right. So they would spend a good amount of time that day just cleaning up the trash, cleaning it up, getting it all taken care of to where it looked beautiful afterwards. The next weekend, they go back out. Same trail, same woods, come across the same river, same spot, and there's trash again. I said, well, what, what's going on here? You know? And so they, again, they clean it all up. They get it all cleaned, bagged up, looked, looking very nice at the end of it. Next week, it happens again. Same woods, same trails, same river, same thing, the trash. They do the whole thing again. Finally, about the fourth or fifth week of doing the same thing, one of the boys finally comes to his senses and says, why don't we go upstream to see what's really going on here? And so they march up that river upstream through the woods and everything, and finally they come to a clearing in the woods. And they see a big old honking landfill. 
trash about a half a mile wide, stacked as high as the trees. A landfill surrounding this river. Trash just even right there in their sight, fumbling about into the water. Meaning, they could clean up the river downstream all they want, every day for the rest of their lives. But until the source was dealt with and done away with, it would make no difference. The river would just continue to be full of filth. So scripture is clear. All of us have sinned. But it's not just that we have done sinful things. It's we are sinners. It's who we are. Doesn't matter our ages in this room. Doesn't matter our accolades, our accomplishments, our backgrounds, our education, our financial situation, our family situation. Doesn't matter any of that. There's a problem within you and within me. There's a problem within the human nature. Down to a DNA level, a heart level. Now, our world says this. Our culture preaches it. And even some pastors teach it. That deep down inside, we're good people. Yeah, we make some bad decisions here and there. But deep down inside, we firmly believe, man, we're good people. Listen. Right there, it's subtle. It's the enemy stripping away the power and effects of sin in our lives. But that right there is a seductive misbelief. That if believed, will send you into a reality forever away from the God who created you and so desperately wants to be with you. If you firmly believe that, you will bypass the cross, having missed its message and declaration, and you will die in sin. Because what the Bible does, what God does, what Jesus does, is he reveals that deep down inside, within the human nature, we're not good people. Out of the mouth of Jesus, he said, it's what's coming out of you that's defiling you. It's not just just about what you do. That is a problem and must be dealt with. But it's also about who you are. The who you are must be dealt with. Because it's not just that we produce trash. It's that inside we're a landfill. Full of deadness full of dirt and filth, full of sin. It's who we are. We are sinners down to our very DNA, the very heart of the human nature. We're wretched. We're wicked. The who we are is consumed with, bound to, and defined by sin. And as a result, we are separated from God, alienated from him, under the wrath of God, in danger of being forever swept away or forever sent away from God. Now that's a major narrative or warning throughout Scripture. For example, in the days of Noah, in the days of Babel, in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the days of Pharaoh, 
and the days of Joshua, and the days of the prophets, and the days of the parables, and the last days, the wicked are swept away and sent away. Warning, warning, warning. There's a problem with who we are. And we can try and clean up the river all we want. We can offer sacrifice every, every day and clean it up and clean it up. But until the source is dealt with and done away with, it will make no difference. The river will just continue to be full of filth. And we'll continue to be in danger of forever being swept away or sent away from God. Thus, that's the declaration of the book of Hebrews, for example, that we need a better death than that of lambs. We need a richer, more pure, a better blood. And that's even a declaration behind the timing of Jesus' death as he hangs on a tree that Friday afternoon. He's literally dying on preparation day for the Passover at the exact time when the priests are preparing the sacrificial lambs for Passover. God's declaration is until the actual source of sin is dealt with, your sacrifices will never be enough. Your works will never be enough. Because it's not just about what you do, it's about who you are. And the veil that separates us from God will continue to stand. But this in here lies the good news. The why behind his death. Listen to what Paul said. For our sake, he made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin. Even though he knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He sent Jesus to deal with and to do away with the source of the problem. Once for all, for all. That in him, you and I might be made right with God again. Saved from being swept and sent away from his presence. Brought near to him. But you ask, well, when did this happen? When did he make him who knew no sin to become sin? At the cross. As the song goes, at Calvary. You go back to this passage in John 19. Here Jesus says, I thirst. It's a major declaration. Not just a fulfillment of scripture, but a huge revelation. But it's an odd thing. He's, again, he's about to die. Why is he asking for a drink? Well, at this point in time, what does it even matter? What's going on? Well, the scriptural fulfillments could either be really one of two places it could be psalm 69 21 that reads like this they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink that is the fulfillment of scripture again that sour wine was mixed a lot with vinegar but also listen to psalm 22 15 which reads my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth it's dry it's thirsty And you, God, you lay me in the dust of death. Now that's very interesting because you go back and read Psalm 22. It's the psalm that opens up with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And those words Jesus would speak on the cross as recorded in Matthew 27 and Mark 15. And you read through Psalm 22, you see them casting lots, you see them playing games for his garments and so on. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what's more is, hear this, in John's gospel, chapter 7, verse 39, Jesus associates the living water, the never-ending river water, with the Holy Spirit. In other words, those who possess the Holy Spirit will never thirst. So here, ironically, Jesus finds no water, though he thirsts for it. So don't miss this. If you line these gospel accounts together, here's Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he's looking for water with none to be found. So what's going on? What's happening? What what does it tell us? Well, no doubt, as one person said, his statements on the cross are an admission that at this point, Jesus is not just fulfilling Scripture. He truly has been forsaken by God. Hear this. For his entire existence, the second person of the Trinity, who stepped down and took on flesh, right? The second person of the Trinity had known community. He had known love. He had known unity and light and goodness and perfection. Always. He has no beginning, no end. He has always known this between himself and the Father and the Spirit. Perfect Trinity. But in this moment, when he became sin, they left him. They abandoned him. In that moment, Jesus tasted and experienced, in a way, the reality of hell itself. A reality in which one is forsaken by God. In a moment, Jesus was swept and sent away. Why do this? Paul said it, for your sake. Because if he doesn't do it, you have no hope. Because of who you are. He became sin. He became the source. He became the landfill. He did this for our sake so that you and I may not face the reality of hell in which one is forsaken by God, in which one is told by Jesus, I don't know you, depart from me. So that you and I might have an invitation to join the community of the Trinity. Remember what Jesus said, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Now you are in me and I am in you. He invites us into the community of the Trinity. That love, that unity, that light and goodness, that perfection, a relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we might be brought to him as sons and daughters in Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus. For at his death, the curtain, the veil that separates us from God was torn top to bottom. You and I didn't do it. God did it. And he now invites us into relationship with him. Because finally, once for all, sins and sin itself 
had been dealt with and done away with. He didn't just die for the trash we produced. He died for the landfill we are. So that you and I may no longer belong to that old identity, but instead inherit a new identity in Jesus and be brought near to God as sons and daughters. So think of it like this. Wesley Autry, the man here on the screen, has become known as the Subway Samaritan, the Subway Superman, and many other nicknames because of something that happened about 16 years ago. So Wesley is a New York construction worker, New York City construction worker, and Navy veteran. And one day he was at the subway station in New York City with his two daughters. And while there, near him, a young man by the name of Cameron had a seizure. And Cameron, because of the seizure, fell down and then fell onto the tracks. Wesley recognizes this and then recognizes also a train is coming. He didn't have enough time to pull him up off the tracks. Literally what Wesley did is he jumped down on Cameron and got him in between the tracks in kind of this gutter situation and literally laid himself down over Cameron, pushing him down. Meanwhile, the, the guy operating the train saw it, put the brakes on, but he couldn't stop in time, and the train went right over them. But because of what Wesley did... The both of them walked away safe and unharmed. That's why Jesus came. To save us. To literally put himself between us and the Father. The weight of the train that would sweep us away and send us away if he didn't. To save us. To save us Not just dying for our sins, but becoming who we are. He became sin, the landfill, the source of that which separates us from God. And he came to make a way for us to have peace between us and God. To be brought near, to be forgiven, to be cleaned and and purified and justified sons and daughters. And so to conclude, to tie this all together... I want you to imagine Palm Sunday. That's this Sunday here. And you got to go back days before this moment in John 19. to The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And you see Jesus riding on a donkey. He specifically asked for it. Of course, the people, they throw their garments on the donkey and on the road going before him. They, they get these palm branches and they begin to put it on the, the road and begin to wave them. They cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's a word, it's just kind of a praise, worship kind of word. Like, praise be to God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you got to ask yourself this, though. Why a donkey? Like, why a donkey? I've ridden on a donkey. They're completely uncomfortable, right? Stubborn animals. Why a donkey? Well, to fulfill Scripture, the Scripture that says, Behold your king. Riding on a donkey. Behold your king. As Pilate said, Jesus bloodied before them all. But still, why not a horse? Why not behold your king riding on a stallion? Why not something like that? Well, because in that day, 
If a king wanted to approach his land or his city, or if a king whose kingdom was not of this world, who wanted to declare to our worlds peace, then he would come riding in on a donkey. If he wanted to declare to them peace, he would come riding in on a donkey. This is God's declaration to you. Behold your king who brings you peace. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, how? By making peace, how? Through his blood shed on the cross. So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. No longer the landfill. A new creation has come. A new identity. No longer born of the flesh, but born of the Spirit. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, bringing the world closer, back near to him, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God's. Why should I? Because for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that happened at Calvary. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite the team forward. We're going to have a time of response. And for some of us, we need to realize in this room that you have a veil over your heart that's separating you from God. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3. You're still alienated from him, separated from him. You can read the scriptures all day, every day. You can come to church. You can gather. You can try this, that, or the other. But there's still that veil over your heart. Paul says very explicitly that veil is only removed when you turn to Jesus. Some of you, as Peter would say, need to repent and believe. You want a relationship with God, it comes only in and through Jesus. You come in your name, you'll be swept away and sent away. Because there's a problem with who you are. It's a problem with the human nature. But God did something about it at Calvary. And all he does is call you to believe. To surrender lordship and kingship to him. To repent and believe. For others of us on this Palm Sunday, we just need to step back and reflect and give thanks to what God has done for us on our behalf in and through Jesus at Calvary. And just to praise him, to worship him, to give him thanks.
For others of us, we, we've got something to confess. We need to repent. For others of us, we just want to pray and just sit in his presence. For others of us, we want to pray for those in our neighborhood or in this community or around the world who are still dead in sin and who need Jesus. But if you have a decision to make, even as I pray, you come forward. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his life, his ministry, his teaching. God in heaven, we thank you for his death. We will never fully comprehend what he went through. But we thank you. And may we never forget the blood poured out, the body given for our sins, but also for our sin. We thank you for who we are in Christ and only in Christ. We give you the glory. Stir our hearts and minds. Bring us to obedience. In Jesus' name I pray. You stand with us as we sing. I'll be down here if you need to come down and make a decision.